This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back to Champagne Problems. I am your co-host, Patrick Balsley. We have two very special guests today, two of my close friends and mentors, Jeff and Deborah Jay. This is a special episode that isn't directly correlated with our mission to kind of touch around gray area drinkers and inspiring conversations. This episode is geared more towards educating our listeners on what to do if you or a family member is really struggling with substance use and how to address it how to start the conversation, where to go, who to reach out to. We couldn't think of two better guests than who we have on today. They are a recovery and industry power couple. They've been in the field for a long time. They've been doing interventions for a long time, and they have dedicated their lives and their careers to helping families navigate what to do when their loved ones are suffering. Jeff Jay is a professional interventionist and co-author of Love First, A Family's Guide to Intervention. He's been working full-time in the substance abuse treatment field since 1996, including work for the Hazelden Foundation. He's a graduate of the University of Minnesota and is a certified intervention professional. He's appeared as an expert on CNN, PBS, and The Jane Pauley Show. His spiritual memoir is Navigating Grace, A Solo Voyage of Survival and Redemption. Awesome read. And his lovely wife, Deborah Jay is a noted author, speaker, and trainer for addiction professionals. She worked for Hazelden as well and was the addiction expert on the Oprah Winfrey Show for three seasons and has also appeared on the Dr. Oz Show. She's a graduate of The Ohio State University and the Hazelden Addiction Professionals Training Program. I have spent a lot of time with these two wonderful people. Like I said, they've been mentors and friends for a while. I've done both their professional intervention training, their structured family recovery training, and let me tell you, they know what they're talking about. I'm really excited to hear what they have to share with us today. So without further ado, Jeff and Deborah J. Welcome, Jeff and Deborah. Thank you. It's so nice to be with all of you today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Absolutely. We've been pumped for this for a while. So let's just jump right in and, and get to know Jeff and Deborah. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background? We can, uh, we can talk about you know, where you guys are, where you grew up. What, uh, how'd you meet? Okay. Yeah. How'd you get into this field? Let her rip. Sure. Okay. Well, I will, I will go first. Um, I, uh, you know, I really, I, I started out in the field after I'd been sober for five years. My uh, alcohol and drug addiction took me to a very dark place when I was uh, quite young and uh, wound up homeless and penniless living on the street, even though I grew up in Gross Point, Michigan, which is a pretty nice place. And uh, I had a, a good family and good <laughs> education, everything like that. But uh, anyway, after I'd been clean and sober for about five years, uh, I decided I wanted to stop making money and start working as an alcohol right. drug counselor, <laughs> which was, you know. Uh, You're in good company. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, know the feeling. so I did that. And um, 
after I had been working as a counselor for about five years, I started up in Michigan at Sacred Heart Rehabilitation Center. It's a long-term program for indigent men and women from the city of Detroit. Great place to learn how to be a counselor, by the way. Uh, I transitioned to working for Hazelden in Florida at what was then called Hanley Hazelden. And there I met an extremely attractive counselor in another unit <laughs> named Deborah. That's another oh, story, well. but we were, a, we were a staff romance. Which was allowed. Yeah, we, yeah we, we like to point out that we were not patients, although we met in, in treatment. You know. uh, and uh, so anyway, it was um, a little while after we got together, and, and then we were married uh, a year or so later, and um, uh, that we made a decision to really focus on intervention. And at that time, which was hundreds of years ago, uh, at that time, intervention was really not well known. And, uh, and all there was were the old Vern Johnson books that really didn't give any kind of direction or uh, provide any kind of manualized way of doing this, much less how to do it with love. So uh, we started a mission uh, nearly 30 years ago now to, to really get into, um, to develop intervention uh, using the Love First model, building on uh, Vern Johnson and, uh, and trying to help people with it. So that's a, a 35,000 foot overview of my story and now we should let Deborah go. Oh, by by the way, Jeff. Jeff, just just so everybody knows, Jeff celebrated forty years sober a couple of days ago. Yes, he did. Yes. I don't, I'm not. I'm not he trying was, to. He was. Age, he was but a child when he got into recovery. But a child. Um, That's yeah, awesome. it's really awesome. So, and I like to say everything is everything that has happened in those forty years. Everything that has happened. Uh, for the two of us and being married and our whole life, everything we've done, all, all is dependent on that decision he made 40 years ago, made everything else possible, oh, you know, yeah. everything else, all wow. the dreams, greater dreams than he would have imagined. But anyway. Which would not have happened if my parents had not intervened, by the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would have died. There's he no question died. about it. He was ready um, to commit suicide and they found him. So it was a, it's a, Fabulous story, but anyway, what a story! Enough of you, Jeff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then, you, then, you shaped, then you shaped him into the man that he is today. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so I'm a Duluth, Minnesota girl, which anyone who knows immediately you should think Scandinavian. Um, so I'm first generation <laughs> Swede, so I have a lot of relatives still in Sweden, and I've dragged Jeff over there a few times. Love it. Um, but, you know, I grew up, I grew up fabulous high school, fabulous, beautiful town in Lake Superior. Um, I loved my life. I loved my family. I loved my extended family. But my dad was what they called a functional alcoholic. And that term is just laughable to me, you know, because functional always means outside <laughs> of the home, Right. So, right. you know, right. even though we lived, I would say, you know, probably a two and a half hour drive from Hazelden, we didn't even know Hazelden existed. We didn't know Alcoholics Anonymous existed, if you can imagine. And this was not that terribly long ago. I mean, we, you know, it just speaks wow. to 
how families just don't get the information. So, you know, long story short, you know, my family, of course, finally broke up. There was finally divorce. Everything changed after that. And um, I went, I'm, I was not the alcoholic. I was the child of an alcoholic. So, you know, I got, I went to Ohio State University, went to college. And as any of us who know that are in recovery, who do you think I would date? You know, good looking, <laughs> like my dad, good looking, charming, you know. Yeah, functional functional alcoholics. alcoholics, you know, one after another. They yeah. all were like, wow, this guy's the greatest, you know. It was like be the envy. Oh, look at her boyfriend. Alcoholic, alcoholic. And the interesting thing that happened to me is when finally all the alcoholics left me because, you know, I would go into super controlling mode. Um, that's when my life fell apart because my drug of choice disappeared, the alcoholic. And that's when I realized I was completely out of control and had the good fortune of going through an excellent family program at a treatment center at the time. And I was told to go to this thing called Al-Anon. <laughs> like, what is Al-Anon? <laughs> but being the good student, you know, I got all dressed up. I don't know how you dress for Al-Anon, but I put a dress on. I put high heels on, you know, <laughs> and I'm trotting along, you know, in the basement of this church. And I'm like, what is this? And went to my first Al-Anon meeting. And that was a very, very long time ago. It was before I met Jeff. Everything changed then. I was working in the fine arts field. And after a couple of years, I was so in love with the 12 steps. I couldn't believe it. It had totally changed my life. I went from not knowing what it was to thinking, what mm -hmm. is this? To, oh my word, where has this been all my life? And then I decided I wanted to work in the field. And so I was trained by Hazelden as a counselor in those days. That was pretty much the only way you could, you know, they didn't have special programs. And I was trained by Hazelden, did my internship with Hazelden. And then of course, Jeff literally sailed into my life because he sailed from Gross Point down to <laughs> Beach and sailed into my life. And then, um, and then the two of us got together. But I'll tell you one funny story because I didn't realize before I got into it what a poor pain field it was. That was a shock to me. <laughs> <laughs> we're saving I lives know. how do we like, not make Whoa, money wait a minute i should have asked that question good thing i didn't ask it anyway and i remember one of the after jeff and i dated a few times i said to him i said you know you are the smartest wait wait what was the line jeff you are the yeah, you, no you, you are had the it. brightest she said you're you the, are the, the, the brightest, brightest um underachiever i've ever met <laughs> 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 and so anyway, I think that spurred him on. And, you know, we were, we've been able to do a lot of fabulous things in our career. And we're, we've loved every minute wow. of it. Yeah, once we, once we really got going with Intervention, then we did our first uh, audio um, product. It was called Take Charge. And we actually got Hazelden to work with Betty Ford. At that time, they didn't work together, much less um, anything else. And... Uh, and then in 2000, the first edition of um, Love First came out, and that was a, a big deal. And as a result of that, um, uh, a few years later, uh, Deborah wound up uh, going on Oprah, and she wound up doing 13 shows with Oprah as her addiction expert in the early 2000s, between I think oh, wow. it was 2003 and 2007. And um, it was three seasons, and then, yeah. Yeah, and then so. other books followed from that. Uh, but 
think I might have seen her on there when I was stoned. Don't like what you don't like what this lady's saying. <laughs> she doesn't know what she's yeah. Bob, turn that off. <laughs> I mean, I'll I tell you, she even idea. made. I love the idea, Patrick, that you would have been watching that one of those TV episodes. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Acting like acting like I'm acting like I'm sober. <laughs> Oh being gosh. the nice nice son watching Oprah with yeah, mom. Yeah, right, so, right. Yeah. But it is, has really been a journey, in the, and it's just uh, just this past May, the third edition of Love First has come out. And so we're we're just really excited with the whole trajectory of the thing. It's really been, uh, really been fantastic. Well, we've got second edition right in front of us. I had to, uh, you know, run through it a little bit before we jumped oh, on here. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you all work at Center City? No, we worked at uh, Hanley Hazelden in West Palm Beach. Yeah. Now just called yeah. Hanley. Those Center. were the really early days. Like when I, I was there before Jeff, and the really early days, it was a very new program then. Most of the people working down there were from Center City, people that they had sent down there, uh -huh. um, originally setting it up, and then people that stayed there. So um, it, was, it was really kind of a golden period of treatment then, and uh, very exciting, good yeah. people great way to learn well my dad was an alumni of hanley and i'm an alumni of center city oh my gosh Whoa. i love that well, so what you do you know. know how about that <laughs> that's yeah. so that cool fabulous? you guys are lucky you didn't run into him <laughs> yeah right, right. wow saved might have changed careers your, <laughs> i wasn't this happy wow. would have messed everything when up. did your dad go through hanley 10 11 2010 and 11 that was okay. past our time yeah that was after yeah. our okay. time. And I was in Sitter City in, in 08. 08. That's yeah. so great. That's so great. Wow. And Jeff's mom yeah. is an alum of Hanley Hazelden, older adult program. You know, Very we intervened cool. on her when she was 72. She is now 93, sober. Still and sober. She tells yeah. us so all cool. the time, you saved my life. I wouldn't be alive today. Aww. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about some of that stuff about the older adult populations. Oh, yeah. And the complexity of those interventions, one of the reasons that, that I chose this field as my career and what kind of fuels my passion is that it was clear as day when I was 16 that, that I had a problem with substances. And, and I didn't get intervened on until I was 26 for the first time, 28 the second time. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that a lot of the things that we're about to talk about um, aren't mainstream. Families don't know where to go. They don't know where to turn. They don't know who to talk to. They don't know how to navigate this process. They don't know what kinds of questions to ask or even where to turn. So let's take a high-level look at, at, you know, what are, what are some of the things to look for um, if, if you kind of start smelling a, uh, an issue or if a family member starts to think that there might be a problem arising with a with another family member or child or even a parent, um, what are some of the key, you know, warning signs to look for that may warrant someone calling you guys? Here's the first thing I think about is, is the person experiencing problems in any area of their life, okay, repeated problems, that are caused by their use of alcohol or other drugs. And it just keeps happening, and they just keep drinking and drugging anyway. 
Okay, that's really the key. You can ask 20 questions, but it comes down to that. Are they having repeated consequences that are really important and they just keep drinking and drugging with impunity? That means that there's probably some kind of an issue. And at that point, you probably need to reach out for some help to discern, you know, what's really going on. Yeah, and I would say, I would say, you know, Patrick, your story is perfect. I mean, this is what happens, you know, 16 already right? Got a problem. First intervention, 10 years later, 10 years of progression. That's what happens because families don't know. They second guess themselves. I mean, people who have somebody in their family who has Alzheimer's, they do the same thing. So if you ask the question, what's going on here? Something's going on here. Okay. Something's Mm -hmm. going on. What is it? And then is the huge leap out into the unknown of where in the world are you going to find trustworthy, reliable, meaningful, action-based help? And let me tell you, that is tough business. And Jeff and I, that's our passion. Mm -hmm. has always been our passion. We're passion-driven for the families because you have to start with the families. And that's the first thing families have to understand. You don't start with the addict, do you? No. That's going to be a big mess, you know, because in any good addict, and it's not the person, it's not the Jeff J, it's not the Patrick, it's the disease. And the disease is going to get you as a family member to start dancing to its tune really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So we always have to start with the family. The focus has to be shift away from the addict onto the family. That's the first thing families have to understand um, because their focus is entirely on the addict for good reason because they don't know what's gonna happen next. And what families have to understand, you know, we talk about enabling, right? And everybody knows if somebody says, mom, you are such an enabler, that is not a compliment, right? That's not a compliment. (laughs) We don't have to explain it, right? But the thing that we never explain to families, and quite honestly, I would say the majority of professionals in this field do not get, is that people don't enable just to save the addict, right? Jeff's mom wasn't enabling Jeff just to save him. She was enabling Jeff to save herself. Uh Every family does. The wife is enabling the husband. He's the paycheck. They got three little kids. That paycheck goes away. The house goes away. The car goes away. Everything goes away. So when we say to a family, stop enabling, they're going to hit bottom with that addict. And if we don't give them a good solution, I mean a good solution that they can trust, they're going to continue enabling. I would. I would. Oh, yeah. Right? Any of us would. Yeah. The, the risks of tough the love. The risks of tough I mean, love because no one tells me you're going to hit bottom with the addict, whether it's a parent seeing their beloved child die, whether it's a spouse getting evicted with their husband, whether it's just the daily hell of living with that yeah. addict. You know, the list goes on and on. Yeah, and that's why it's so important that the, the family take a step back start talking to each other, get good information, and and start planning how they're really going to do this. Because just charging in with some kind of tough love thing, like, you know, I'll get a call almost every Friday saying, we're going to intervene on my brother tomorrow. Do you have any tips? You know? <laughs> yeah, don't do right, it. Exactly. Right. And that's what I, you're exactly right. I say, I say, yes, I do. Don't do it. You know, you really have to uh, make sure that, um, you have the right strategy, you've done the right planning and preparation, and you've got all your I's dotted and T's crossed. It's quite a process. It's not something you do overnight. And I hope that's what we talk about because that's a big leap. 
you know, telling somebody you got to get that plan in place, how? And there's so much bad information now that people can get just by, you know, going to Mr. Mm -hmm. Google. So do you all normally work with the family before the identified patient or the, you know, the person struggling comes in at all and is aware? Yeah, Charlotte, always. Charlotte, always, always, and, and extensively, you know, we, you know, I was talking to somebody who's the executive director of a very well-known national level, well thought of treatment center just a few days ago. And he said to me, we just can't believe the number of drive-by interventions we're getting now, you know, just flying in, using muscle, Mm -hmm. getting the addict into treatment. What all families members need to hear is that whether you do that yourself or whether you do it with somebody who's charging you for them to do that, you're bringing someone who yeah. is going to be in a really bad place when they get into treatment, and you're going to waste a lot of valuable treatment time just dealing with um, the end result of that. Lots of anger, unmanageability, I want out of treatment. and um, Distrust. It, it, absolutely, Patrick. So you just start burning up all this time in treatment just dealing with the after effects of really bad mm. interventions. Families don't understand that's what's happening. And treatment, you know, if you can afford to go into inpatient treatment, in, in many circumstances, you're writing some pretty significant checks to cover that. And you're, you're wasting a lot of that money a lot, a lot of the time. Um, but yes, Charlotte, to go back to your question, um, it's really important that the, the family and friends, the people that are going to be part of what we call the recovery team, um, really get educated themselves and go through a, a preparation, a training, and a rehearsal process before we then approach uh, the person who's suffering from chemical mm-hmm. dependency. And, you know, you have and, to realize, and, if I can just jump in, Jeff, you have to realize that if you don't do that, you're wasting the very most important resource you have, and that's the family. I mean, there's never going to be a time when you're going to have at any other time in this process of treatment, aftercare, that you're going to have a whole team of the most important people in that addict's life together. Mm. There is no counselor in treatment that has time to talk to all those people. We talk to them extensively, and then we, that is hugely important. We have the best we have the best assessment of what's going on with that person. Because first of all, we're not just getting it from the addict, right? That's, that's yeah. troublesome, right? They're not good historians. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even remember half the things. But, you know, all of a sudden, it's the best friend. It's the mom. It's the dad. It's the sister he confides in. There's the uncle that he really likes. There's the, you know, cousin since birth that knows him really well. And we're getting everything from everybody. And then we're able to train them And we, the third edition of Love First now, we've thrown out the term intervention team. It's out the window because intervention team is finite, right? Mm -hmm. Even the best design intervention, we're working together a couple weeks. So we start everybody out. We're all family recovery teams. And the first thing we do is intervention. That changes everything because now the family is seeing their role completely differently and that's key because we know relapse rates are high after treatment, mm. and we we got to stop that. Huh. We got to do something. So let's let's back up a little bit and and educate our listeners a little bit more on the actual term and a- action associated with interventions. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of us, especially you know just general public, 
probably has this idea of the TV show and, and you know, they've, they've got this one little uh, intervention style that they see in their brains and I would love to know, or, you know, I kind of know the answer because I know that it can vary based on what degree we're dealing with, uh, but I would love to hear you all just kind of educate on that term. Well, it is a broad term and it is not like the TV show. <laughs> uh, it's really about focusing the the love and concern of the family members and friends in a very specific and organized way so that we can break through the, you know, just the normal defenses and denial that the the, the person suffering from addiction has and, and get them into treatment. But it's all about focusing that love and concern and the power of a really loving and well-organized group. It's so important to have as Deborah was saying, you know, all the most important people in the alcoholic's life there. Because, you know, as an alcoholic myself, I was used to playing mom off against dad or against sister or friend, you know, whatever. I'm telling everybody different stories. I'm telling them what they all need to hear so that, you know, I can get a little bit more money or what have you. Well, you know, when all of a sudden they're all in the room together and they're all very obviously highly organized and prepared and uh -oh. there's a counselor there it's like oh boy and <laughs> out I'm, the window i go right and i'm thinking they're really going to hammer me and they don't instead they talk about when they've been proud of me and how i've been helpful to them everything i'm like are you kidding me and uh and then really uh talking about it as a medical issue that requires professional treatment not a moral issue or character issue or willpower issue, you know, and then really uh, laying out a plan for success and talking about how, you know, to Deborah's point, intervention is not enough, how they're going to walk the walk with me through structured family recovery and into Al-Anon. And I will tell you, way back when, when I went through treatment uh, before the Civil War, I mean, way back when, my parents actually attended the family program and started going to Al-Anon. Well, how could I not follow through with what I was supposed to do when they were doing it? You know, uh, it really created this very positive social norm, this very good example that was almost impossible for me not to follow. So um, there are many, many, many details to this, but that, that's a little uh, beginning sketch. We often think, oh, well, we've got this, you know, unmanageable, beloved alcoholic or addict. And, you know, let's just say we intervene because we truly love that person. We might want to wring their neck, but we love them. But we can't trust them, right? Can't trust them. But the thing that we don't talk about oftentimes is the whole family's, mm -hmm. everybody's on a different page. Everybody's at everybody's neck, not just the alcoholic. <laughs> you know, dad is like, kid just needs to grow up, you know? He's and fine. mom is like, He's oh, fine. oh, you know, right. I'm, I'm kind of, it could be reversed. It could just be dad just the, phase. you know? Right. He's, you know, and, and sister's mad at dad and yeah, it's a phase and everybody's mad at everybody else and everybody has a different uh, 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 idea of how to proceed and everybody thinks everybody else is wrong. So when you start out with a family, you've got a whole oh, yeah. family that's in yeah, chaos. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, it's an art to bring that family on the same page. And it's necessary because if they're not on the same page, they're not going to support treatment well. It's all going to be unmanageable. Anybody who's worked in treatment knows a lot of the fires, they, they start with the interaction between family and, and their beloved alcoholic or addict on the phone at night 
<laughs> you come back the next morning and everything is, you know, just gone to hell. You've got to have that family, and it's an art to do that. What Jeff is talking about sounds really simple, but it's extremely choreographed. It's like you're the conductor mm-hmm. of an orchestra, and you've got to get yeah. them all in tune, all playing this beautiful tune together, and there's a real art to doing that. Do you all find that that now that you know mental health and addiction is a little bit more mainstream and we're starting to talk about it more, that, that your interventions or – the, you know, the families that have been calling you are calling you for any less severity of substance use disorders or, you know, that are now kind of smelling, you know, smelling a little bit of smoke and kind of getting ahead of the curve to where there could potentially be, you know, somebody that calls you that doesn't necessarily need inpatient treatment or, or are there any other approaches that you all take? Because a lot of our you know, a lot, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show are more for, you know, people that are just starting to explore their alcohol use. Are there people that kind of jump the gun on the necessity of treatment or? It's, it's rare. You know, I, I just want to say it's rare. It does happen, but it's rare. For the most part, people are calling us with more acute cases than we used to get. You know, the, yeah. the greater availability of greater kinds of substances and everything, mm-hmm. and the potency is through the roof. Um, so we're really seeing a, a higher acuity uh, patient. But it's still the case most of the time that people wait you know, really quite a few years beyond when they, they might have first taken action, which is fine. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. But we uh, really work with people that are not so much still dancing on the top of the cliff. They've gone over the cliff. They're, you know, yeah. they're on the rocks. They're, they're broken to pieces. And, you know, and that, that's really who we work with for the most part. People, you know, some people will, will do their their explorations, they'll get into moderation of, of one sort or another, and they'll be okay. But some people can't, and they don't, and they get worse, and then they get worse, and then they get worse. And that's when uh, an intervention is necessary, because just like in my case, and in most cases, there isn't going to be some day when I wake up and say, oh, gee, you know, I think I'll clear my schedule and go to treatment for a while. You know, I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. It's usually a legal consequence, a medical consequence, some kind of terrible thing happens. Or if you're really, really, really lucky, it's a love-first intervention, and, you know, you get to go with a lot of love and support. You know, there are a lot of things about today, like, you know, sober curious and thing, which is just great. But, you know, alcoholics and addicts have always done that. They've always done that. I mean, and, and it's one of the oldest diseases trying to manage, desperately trying to manage their alcohol or other drug consumption to be normal, like non-addicted people. And that's as old as time. And I, and I would just say as a person who was not addicted, but early on going to the family program, learning it was genetic and looking around my family, you know, I decided to quit drinking then because I thought, you know, this is Russian roulette. I don't know. I keep drinking, I may cross that line into addiction myself. And so I have an experience being that person mm-hmm. who decided, is alcohol right for <laughs> me? And coming up with the answer, no. You know, I'm a little risk averse. I didn't want to go there. And you know what I learned is that really, if you don't have a problem, it's pretty darn easy 
to walk away from alcohol. Sure, in the beginning, there was a moment where I'd be at a dinner, everybody would be having a glass of red wine, but it, it wasn't a big deal. So I would say to people, if you really can't do it, there's a reason, there's a reason. You know, if you try and you've tried. I have some questions about the inter- going back to the family things, but I'm, before we do that, I'm so curious, after you made that choice and decided not to drink anymore, you know, other than the risk-averse piece, what, what kind of differences did you notice in your life and in your work after you decided to stop drinking? It was the best thing I ever did for myself. I mean, I, you know, I was young. I was out every night. Yeah. I was very social, and alcohol was always there. You know, and back in those days, a little cocaine occasionally. Mm-hmm. Not that I was big druggy, but, you know, <laughs> there it would be, sure. right? You know, a little here, a little there, you know. Never bought never it, it, hey, never bought <laughs> it. Anyway, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but no, it changed. You know, I, I always say to Jeff, oh, my whole life is just so much better. It's just like... I can't even tell you. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine if I hadn't made that choice. It's just phenomenal. And right from the beginning, I felt better. I woke up. I was energetic. My brain was clear. I didn't have hangovers. I I mean, everything I've done, I think, has largely also, it's contributed to the fact that I've had this kind of sober life. And I'm not saying I'm anti-alcohol for people who want wine. I'm not saying that. But for me, but the other thing, Charlotte, that was really interesting, especially as I look back now, are the people, the friends that got really irritated that I wasn't drinking. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. I mean, I had friends that say, you are such a bore now. Oh. I realize. And of course, you know, I mean, Anyway, yeah. I won't there's go nothing, There's it's nothing, nothing more boring than more being boring successful. Than, like, yeah. <laughs> yes. but, right, 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 right. Exactly. It's so boring. Yeah. But, you know, I look back on that now, Charlotte, and I realize those were my friends, and I've seen it now, these years have gone by, that were already alcoholics. They were already addicted to drugs. And I didn't know it at the time. But as time progressed, I learned that that was the thing. So of course, usually the people who are going to be really irritated that you're not drinking, it's because they have a problem. And it's personally threatening to their addiction. Yeah, Their addiction feels threatened by you. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Your relationship with alcohol <laughs> is needed to protect their relationship with alcohol. Yeah. And that plays into the it's family absolutely. dynamic too. It's kind of a wild, crazy thing, yeah. but that's how it yeah. works. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about this dance, dealing with families. And before I got into production, I was a family therapist. So I absolutely have so much respect for people who can navigate and and facilitate that dance. But I think a lot of our listeners will probably, you know, be looking at their life and their family and, and wondering what would this process be like as a person on that recovery team, I think is what you called it. So can you guys talk a little bit about some of the skills they might anticipate learning or diving into at the beginning of this process before the intervention itself takes place? Yes. Um, One thing I think that's really important is that we're not going back and we're not doing a lot of family therapy and trying to dig up the past and figure out where everybody was doing things wrong and what they need to, you know, I mean, you can go on this excavating expedition Mm -hmm. forever and go nowhere. So we are very forward-looking. What do we need to do now? Yes, we need to get a very thorough history from everyone so that we understand the lay of the land and we can accurately, uh, you know, figure out what are all the issues we're dealing with. Is there trauma? Is there, you know, et cetera. But 
we're going forward. How are we going to deal with this situation? How are we going to compose our intervention letters? How are we going to put together an intervention team? What is the plan going to be? Very step-by-step and very forward-focused. People often are afraid of going into the past with good reason, and they don't need to be afraid of that, doing an intervention. And they're very afraid that they're going to Mm -hmm. wind up at each other's throats, but working with a good professional, that's never going to happen. It should never happen for sure. And so what they can expect are more action-based and very focused solutions. How do we move forward now? How do we anticipate what our alcoholics' objections are going to be? And how are we going to come up with the best answers? How are we going to deal with all the contingencies? What are we going to do if they walk out? Very practical things. And if you're working with a good, experienced clinical interventionist who has a good clinical background, then you're going to get expert guidance in that. We're going to keep it simple, keep it moving forward. At the same time, we're very thorough, but we don't want to get into a lot of ancillary issues and arguments and everything else. We've got a leader. We've got a plan. We've got a methodology we're going to follow. And it's very, very effective. It's very successful. And so, you know, we we really just bring them together and and help them to find uh, the confidence and, and the method that's going to work for them. I always like to think of it as like planning a big wedding. Mm. You know, all the details <laughs> that you never know are there. Oh, yeah. Right? And when Jeff is talking, I talk, you know, these are the little things. Like he's giving you the big picture, but just getting that history, having the expertise to understand the order to ask people to share what they know about the addict mm. is key. Like if everybody's mad, let's yeah. say it's the husband, everybody's mad at the wife, right, and his family. You don't start with the wife because you alienate the rest of the team. You've got to start with somebody who's neutral enough. The sister. Doesn't have a lot of baggage <laughs> and um, is going to be willing she to talk. She knows everything. Knows the sister. You know. <laughs> the sister. Right. She knows everything. He calls her late at night. You know, she knows it all. And then, and then you know, Patrick brought up, you know, interest in older adults for instance a lot of times with people the same generation they won't talk so we put them all the way at the end and it's only after they've listened to everybody share that they open up so the art involved in this the 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 wisdom and the art and the little details just like you know you can have you know you can forget that wedding cake and that's going to be a big deal you might have only forgotten one thing with that wedding but it was the cake right or it was the bouquets and that's a big problem the same thing with intervention because that addict is scanning 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 for any little chink in the armor Mm. any little thing that you've forgotten and when interventions are poorly done man they find it even if you get them in treatment they remember so we like to make sure every detail uh is done just right do you ever leave anybody out yep yes right We do, and it's tricky. It's tricky because sometimes it's a key person. So let's say it's dad, and dad has got his own alcohol problem. Sister again comes and whispers to you, our dad is an alcoholic. And you're like, oh boy, here we go. Sometimes you got to keep him in. It's just important, you know? And then then you've got to work it out. And sometimes it comes down to dad deciding he's going to get help for himself and telling his son or his daughter. 
uh, it, it, and it gets very, very, very tricky, as you can imagine. Yeah. But sometimes there are people you have to leave out. Um, and then how do you deal with those people? So like what I would do is say, okay, we're going to tell that person, listen, we need somebody on the outside of the intervention that if they come to you, that you weren't part of the intervention and you can be supportive of what we've done. So we give them a role so they don't feel um, antagonistic towards us or the process. Mm. Or sometimes you have people that are really key and they don't want to participate because yeah. they think it's like the television show or some other idea in their head, right? So, but we need them. So what do we do? We say, listen, that's fine. And it is fine. Everybody has to make up their own mind. But listen, would you just participate in the training and the rehearsal? Do everything everybody else is doing just so you know clearly what we're doing. So if he or she comes to you afterward, you can speak really knowledgeably. And guess what happens is when they realize, oh, it's not this idea in my head. It's something so different. They often will then decide, you know what, this is this is good. I'll participate. And if they don't, you don't want them on the team because, you know, the alcoholic's going to get the sense they don't want to be there. You see? So it's all these knowing, all these little things um, that make a world of difference in how that intervention unfolds and, how, and the results of it. Can you all speak a little bit more towards the objections? And, and maybe not sure. specifically the objections that happen during the intervention, but maybe even objections from family members on the front end where, you know, we have an issue that's identified. A couple of the family members are, are tiptoeing around it. Maybe that they're, obje oh, well, we can't do that because X, Y, and Z will happen, or we can't do an intervention because, you know, he, he can't miss work or... You know, yeah. if we do the intervention, like, can you speak to that a little bit? I think that's... Sure. You know, what I like to suggest when people aren't sure and they're, you know, the potential team members are in different places is, you know, with our private practice, I, I would say, let's do a module one. And so what that entails is just getting... Nobody has to make a commitment to doing an intervention or, or anything like that. Let's just get on a Zoom tonight for a couple hours, maybe even three hours, We'll talk through the case in great detail. We'll let everybody share what they know and share their concerns. And we'll take them through an initial training process and stuff like that. It tends to galvanize the team. They all get together. I, I know in advance from talking to whoever is setting it up, who's got the objections that you're talking about, who's yep. got the doubts, who actually knows something. So I'm going to start that history gathering part out by having the sister talk, by having the friend talk with the friend who actually came to the parents and said, you know what, you've got to do something about Billy, you know, and that kind of thing. And once we get that kind of stuff out on the table rolling, then mom and dad can bring forward their concerns and their doubts. And, you know, grandma will say, oh, my God, I had no idea Billy was that bad. And, and, and they just tend to come together and they overcome their own objections by listening to each other. Also, it's a key thing that I'm not trying to sell a service or sell an intervention. I have to earn their trust too. You know, I, just to take a, just a little aside, I mean, on our website, we have hours and hours and hours of free podcasts. They can learn how to do the whole thing themselves for free on our website at lovefirst.net. They don't have to hire me. 
you know, I am giving it all away. We are giving it all away all the time. So if they want to work with me, that's great. But I'm not pushing something. I'm helping them and guiding them through an exploration process, giving them solutions, letting them see the big picture, and most importantly, showing them how we can focus love and concern in this very organized way to help their Billy get the help that he needs. Wow. And you can do all of that. And sometimes you have a family member who really is antagonistic. You know, the family's decided, yeah, we, we need to do this. Yes, we need some professional help. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you one case, wonderful family, large, you know, they were... <laughs> the know-it-all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this yeah. one, then this one was a real, really knew-it-all too, because... But, you know, it was an older adult mother, dad had died, big family, kids were all like either lawyers or doctors, all of them. And uh, one brother was a Harvard-educated psychiatrist, and he couldn't uh, accept that mom was, you know, an alcoholic, even though she was drinking bottles of wild turkey. They were all over the house. She had a depression problem, and he was so annoyed that the family brought me in. He was just insulted mm. by me, right? <laughs> insulted by me. Who is Deborah she? Jay. Deborah, yeah, you know. <laughs> and so I know instinctively, I gotta make him my BFF here. I've gotta make him my partner. And he's valuable. He's extremely valuable to this whole process. And that's an art too that you can allow someone to really dislike you and your presence and move them into a place where they're your partner. You have to be able to do that because that person is going to be the most valuable person on the team. And if you don't, if you're not aware of that, you're in trouble. You're on a sinking ship already. Um, Even if you get them into treatment, you're on a sinking ship because that person is going to sabotage. And then that's an art. That's an art. Mm. And it's not easy. But they're the most important. The person who's the angriest about the intervention happening in the family is the most important person in wow. the room. Wow. Such an, such an art form. It's really, really mm-hmm. fascinating to listen to you all eloquently describe it. You know, you often hear that the individual that's battling or, 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 or the suspect or whatever we want to call them is, is needs to be empowered, you know, needs to make the decision on their own. You can't force them to do anything, or you're, or like you said, Jeff, you're wasting time and money. Now, I understand that Love First Model plays into that, and that is that is the whole idea and the, and the methodology there, but could you speak to that? Because I think our listeners typically will, will naturally ask that question. Yes, I think it, I think there's a difference between letting the person, you know, make their own decision, because in my case, I just say, well, sure, I'm going to keep drinking. Thanks. Glad, yeah. you know, glad you love me. And um, can I have 20 bucks? I love you. I love you. you know. <laughs> Cheers to that. What we want to do, though, is is help them make that decision as part of a larger family and friends group, that we love you. We care about you. This is why we're concerned. We've got something that's really Uh, great for you. I think um, we kind of have a tendency to go too far in in making everybody uh, uh, out to be an individual who who lives, you know, in a vacuum, but we're really all part of a greater we. And so if we can bring the love and concern of that greater we, that family and friends group together, then the person will make a better decision under 
not the not the you know threat of this or that, but under the overwhelming um, pressure in a good way of love, in the light of love, in the light of you know what is what is best for my best self. Because what alcohol and drugs do is really kill the spirit. They smother the spirit, and so I make decisions not about you know, what's good for me, what's good for the family, what's good for the people that I love and my relationships with them. I make decisions about, you know, I need to get high right now. And I'm sorry, but, you know, that's the only thing that matters. And so I'm not going to make it a good decision. I need the help of, you know. I'd yeah. like to say too, Jeff, is that the addiction is making the decisions. I mean, let's be real. Yeah. And that's what people have to understand. We mix the person up with the disease. Right. And the person that has a disease has no idea what's happening to them either. You know, they are violating their own values. They cannot keep promises that they make and they mean. They mean the promise in that moment and they cannot keep them. And the list goes on and on. And so in this culture of ours and probably worldwide, we the most dangerous and damaging myth we have is you can't help an alcoholic or an addict until he or she wants help. Mm -hmm. That is wrong mm -hmm. if you know the right way to do it. Let me tell you, when an alcoholic or addict is facing 15 years in jail, they are so ready to get help. <laughs> they are so <laughs> right. ready to get help. I mean, let's, let's be real. But what I always say is this, if you can't help an alcoholic or addict until they want help, what will get them to want help? It's either going to be an unorganized, jumbled mess of personal tragedies that also affect the family and the people closest to them, or it can be something really organized, really well-designed, with love. Um, and not I'm not talking Hallmark. We love Hallmark cards, but I'm not talking Hallmark card love, right? I'm talking Mother <laughs> Teresa, roll up your sleeves and get busy love, right? Mm. And that's what we have to look at. And the other thing is, is that you just have to let the alcoholic hit bottom. Well, hey, we know all sorts of people that have had a bottom with no bounce, don't we? They don't come mm -hmm. back. They don't come back. Yeah, especially and, uh, now. Yep. Especially now. And the whole family, even the smallest child, is going to hit bottom with them. Mm -hmm. And Hazelden did a big survey some years ago, and they found that of their patients, 77% came to treatment because family and friends intervened in some way. That's a big number. Wow. Yeah. I run into this problem all the time. I see it all the time with, you know, people tagging themselves as interventionists and doing these kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants interventions. The treatment world can also be a difficult place to navigate. Where do you all start with that? What kind of advice can you give our listeners around not only the importance of hiring a highly trained clinical interventionist to, to do a process like this, if needed, but also the treatment navigation problems. Avoid Google. Avoid search engines and reviews at all costs. You know, if you search for, you know, we're sitting here uh, talking to you from Michigan. If I type in, you know, um, alcoholism treatment in Michigan, the page will be about five ads at the top, three ads at a the bottom, three real links in the middle, and all of it will be junk. Almost none of it will really be treatment in Michigan. It's really, really hard. You need to get some professional guidance. You need to have some help in choosing treatment because the internet is, I mean, 
it's the worst place to start. So at, if, if nothing else, get some help with your treatment selection. Okay. And listen, when it comes to getting help, you got to get the right kind of help. This is tricky business. You know, just a random counselor may have no information at all. If you can talk to somebody, like in our practice, we talk to anybody. We'll give anybody at least a free 15 minutes, which always turns into 25 minutes. You know, I mean, no cost. Jeff spends a lot of his time talking to people all over the country, helping them out. Because it is another complex question. Mm -hmm. What are your resources? What do you have? Do you have to stay in, st in state? What's your insurance coverage? What can we do for you? What, um, what, what are the needs of that individual? Because not all treatment centers are going to help your particular yeah. person and their needs. Co-occurring disorders, age, gender. Right. Absolutely, Patrick. So the thing about it is I want to say right now, right now, I hope everyone listens to this. Jeff and I, and this is like a big deal for us, we have started a website, totally non-commercial. It is not connected to us. It's not connected to our website. It is totally non-commercial. Nobody has to put their name in or their email. It's totally free. And it's all these what we call snap trainings, these little short podcasts. And it walks people through everything. And one of the things we talk about in there is what you need to know when you're trying to find treatment. What you need to know when you don't have any insurance and you're trying to find treatment. What you need to know when you have no money and you're trying to find treatment. I mean, it goes through all, all the way from before treatment, all the way through after treatment. What about the children? All this information that we've gathered over our each 30 years plus in this field um, that we have given for free for people, non-commercial, gethelpgivehelp.info, gethelpgivehelp.info, because even today, we can't give you enough information on that, you know, but yeah. that you can go in, and like I say, you don't have to give, you don't give your name, you don't do anything, it's just free, it's just there, it's non-commercial, and um, you can share it with other family members, because even what we talk about now, I mean, you've got, it's got to be we have it has to be transportable how do i get this information if i'm talking to a professional but how do i share it with everybody else in my family and that this gets everybody started this helps people this has a tremendous amount of hard-earned wisdom in it and um people can get those kinds of answered and, and it's nuanced you know it's nuanced but ultimately i would say is talk to a really really good clinical intervention that has interventionist as well that has national level experience because they're going to know they're going to know oh man that's super helpful i uh i call patrick <laughs> yes i would too patrick i would call knows. patrick too for sure I mean, he's the the network sure. Tra king trained here. by the best for sure <laughs> You Definitely call me, call. I call Deborah. And well, because if you if you can get a hold of a you know a decent professional, um, you know they're really only going to have to listen. It's not going to take them an hour to figure out what needs to happen here. Um, yeah. You know this is something that I've been doing day in and day out for you know a million years now, and um, it doesn't take long to get the lay of the land and to make some some good recommendations now building a strategy and bringing the team together that's something else but and that's built you know. on your experience i just want yeah. to point that out to people that's built on the richness of your experience you know and that's and that's what's important you know i, I don't want people to think it's just a random thing like anybody i choose can do this for me right they may have other strengths but this is very specific deborah i saw that you wrote a book on this the same type techniques the same type 
concern for a grandparent or an elderly aged person. Let's dive into that a little bit. Personally, I'm, I'm 44. My parents are right at the age, uh, you know, and I actually dealt with a father in that world, and we had no idea what to do. I think that would be super helpful to talk about. You know, you're asking me about one of my favorite topics, and that's older adults and addiction. Um, you know, Hazelden, at Hanley Hazelden, they pioneered older adult treatment, and I had the good fortune of being the first supervisor of the older adult track. It wasn't a separate program yet. We had a track within um, our regular programming, and I fell in love with this population. And that was a long time ago, so I was dealing with kind of that World War II um, population, right? Old mm -hmm. enough to fight in World War II. And now they're mostly gone, and even the Korean War kind of era their late 80s, 90s, um, and so we're looking at baby boomers, and I'm a baby boomer, <laughs> so I know something about them, right? So the thing is, when you're looking at older adults, I mean, first of all, what alcohol does to their body, and of course, prescription drugs with baby boomers, you're going to have a lot more marijuana, illicit drugs, of course, the whole opiate thing, I mean, we know it goes on and on, but what it does to the body, so just for an example, like what might be one drink you know, at 35, when you're 65 or 70 or 75 might be the equivalent of three drinks. So mom has one drink, it's three drinks. But I did interventions and I specialized on that with older adults for a very long time. And I was working with women who were young. I mean, they were like 61. And they were, they were like really, really sick 85-year-olds just from the alcohol, incontinent. I remember one case... You know, the daughter said, I'm talking to my mother in the kitchen. She's got a dress on, and she just urinates on the, standing up on the kitchen floor. Mm. She was 61 years old, and she was completely unaware that she was even doing it. The stories are, are really horrific for older adults, and they're easily ignored because there's this other terrible myth in our society is, you know, it's their last pleasure. Addiction is never a pleasure, and it steals them from their grandchildren. It mm -hmm. changes the legacy of a family. Um, Jeff will speak to his relationship with his mother since she's gotten sober. These 21 years has completely changed. His whole legacy of his family has completely changed because we intervened upon her. So Love First is actually, the whole idea behind Love First came from me intervening on older adults. I thought, oh, wow. we have got to come in in a very loving way. These are people who raise their children, their grandparents. They've had careers. Uh, they have been members, you know, respected members of their communities. And I developed this approach, this before we called it Love First, this approach for intervention, and it was amazing. It was amazingly effective. And then I thought, we should do this with everybody. It doesn't matter your age. And we started doing it. And then Hazelden said, we'd like you to write the book. So Love First all started with older adults. And the most interesting thing is, so you can use Love First. And it talks about intervening. The other book, Aging and Addiction, very helpful. They're all written for families. But I would say that where things change is what generation you're intervening on. So like my parents were more like, I'm your mother, right? I'm your mother. Yeah. I'm not your friend. I don't care if you're not happy with me. This is the way it's going to be. You know, I'll listen to you, but I'm going to make the decision. Baby boomers, what do they want? They want their children to be their friends first. 
more mm. important than parenting. Friends first. And so you have to think about those relationships when you design the intervention, depending on the generation, you see? And you, if you don't, you're missing the boat. And if you do, you can leverage them in the best way. I, I just want to jump in with one like example. Like You can be intervening on, like say, an older guy. He's retired. He's been successful. Nobody can tell him what to do. They think we can't possibly intervene on him, you know, because he's going to tell everybody to jump in the lake and he's got his own money. And I mean, there's just no leverage. There's no nothing. That doesn't matter. What matters? There's he has, rarely leverage. There's rarely leverage he, with older adults. Seriously, not real leverage. Yeah, that's right. But what he is worried about what can't what we can come to him with love is is you know what is your legacy going to be we need you for our grandchildren we need you to teach them how to fish we need you you know all that kind of stuff we can get to because what we always want to do in all interventions is we want to get out of the head because the addiction owns the brain so there's no point in arguing things on some kind of a logical basis you've got to get to the heart Okay, what does the person really care about? What is most important to them? What is their purpose? What is their calling? Even as an older adult, now it's different. But um, getting to that heart and opening that heart just a little bit is the key to beginning the recovery process. And, you know, I'll, I'll just, if I can, I'll just tell you really quickly one case. So dad was a PhD, was a scientist, um, you know, he made good money, but it was through his investments. He really made a lot of money through investments. So he's retired. He's living on the ocean. He has a huge sailboat, this long dock going out there. Out there's the boat. Um, kids are super successful. And, and the son, one of the sons was a surgeon, and he said to me, what my dad is most proud of me in his life, of, of himself in his life, are his investments and how he has made all this money through wise investments and how he can be retired in style that he, he wanted, sailing. So you have to know the family. You have to know more than about the addiction. If you stop at the addiction, again, you lose all sorts of things that make things successful. So I go in. It was important that I was a woman, not a man, right, with this guy. Mm. He had a chair, this beautiful Scandinavian black leather chair in this living room overlooking the ocean that was his chair no one was allowed to sit in. That's where I sat. If you were a man, <laughs> forget it. You could not have done that, right? But that was my chair. He went to that chair. I said, oh, that's my chair. Oh, he was very polite. People tend to be very polite. Oh, okay. I said, why don't you sit on the couch between your wife and your son, the surgeon, right? I sit in his chair. See, it was important that I was a female, and I knew I could sit in his power chair, and he would not cross me on it. He'd cross Patrick on it. He'd cross Jeff on it, right? But he still wouldn't say yes. He would not say yes to his kids because he was the boss, right? And I looked out that window. I said, is that your sailboat? Because I knew he loved sail more than anything, and I've done my share of sailing. He goes, yeah. I go, you want to show it to me? He goes, Sure. We walked on that long, long walk in the Gulf of Mexico down that beautiful boat. We talked sailing. He told me all about his boat. It was just a beautiful day. We turned around to walk back, and halfway down that dock, I stopped and I looked at him. I said, you know, your son said the thing that everybody's the most proud of with you is your investments, and that's made all this possible. And he goes, yeah, that's right. And I said to him, maybe it's time you need to invest in yourself. 
And he looked at me, and he paused, and he said, I think you're right. I said, shall mm. we go tell him? He goes, yeah. You see the oh, subtlety? You see the subtlety there? And that's, that's because... That's why you're Deborah Jane. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But it's because right. I learn everything I can about the family, everything I can about the person. All those things come into play. If I don't take the time, if I don't work to do that, I would have lost that guy. Right? Mm. And you have yeah. to use what you got. And if you don't got it, well, right? And so that's why when we talk about, Patrick, you know, these drive-by interventions, these, you know, ambush interventions. Um, everyone out there listening to me, don't go down that road with somebody. Don't pay somebody to take you down that road. Or don't do it yourself. Wow. Great stuff, guys. Are there three recommendations, three questions, three observations that they could look um, look at in their own life or in their family life to sort of start this process if there is someone they are concerned about, um, whether it's themselves or somebody in the system? If I could just start, Jeff, and then give it to you, I would just say get educated. And that's one of the things that we're all about. We have our website, lovefirst.net, has tons of free, those little tiny mini podcasts that we call snap trainings. We have like, it's a 70-page web, 75-page website. You will get so much free information. Share it with your family. Go to gethelpgivehelp.info. Share it with your family. When you all have a, um, when you all have a strong foundation, uh, information will, and it's action-based information, will bring you guys together faster than anything else you can do. And because these things are snap trainings, you can say, hey, listen to this. This is what I always say, you know, contempt prior to investigation to get over that. Mm -hmm. This will only take us all five minutes. Tell people how long it'll take them. We listen to this, it'll take five minutes. Get them to do one simple thing. Don't talk about, let's do an intervention. You'll scare half your family to death, right? Let's just do this one thing. Can you listen to this? It's five minutes. And um, we... That's our mission in life, is to give families as much free, meaningful, action-based information. Go there, use it, share it, and then the ball will start rolling. And Jeff, <laughs> what you would say to that? I would say if somebody that you love or a friend or whatever, if they have a problem, realize they're not going to be able to fix it on their own. Okay, if it's not a problem, okay, fine. Maybe they can moderate and, you know, all that kind of thing. That's great. If it's not working out, realize there may be an illness going on here. It may really be addiction. It may really be a substance use disorder. And they need help just like they would with any other problem. And like so many other problems, the person is often reluctant to get the help themselves or, or just adamantly refuses and so they need the help of their family members and friends. Don't think that you are impinging on their freedom or their individuality or their self-determination. You know, a lot of us come to a point in life where we need help and we need our family and friends to step up and help us. I tell you, I would have died in my addiction if it had not been for people reaching out and pulling me out of the hole I was in. I could have never gotten out on my own. And I'd just like to end to say as a family member, don't believe what the addict is telling you. That's the disease talking to you. Um, we got an email from a fellow once who read Love First. He was the addict. He read Love First. And he emailed Jeff and he said, 
I don't think my family loves me. They haven't intervened on me. Huh. You know, that really sticks with me. Yeah, they, he actually said, I don't think my family loves me enough to do an intervention. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? Wow. I, I did an intervention this past weekend, okay, out west. And at the beginning, they're all saying, oh, you know, you don't understand. This is a big, tough guy. He's never going to go. He's blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, you've got to have a, you've got to be really tough. No, <laughs> all of that was wrong. You know, yeah. it was so loving. It was so gentle. And he said yes in like five minutes. It was unbelievable. But not unbelievable to me because that's what we do. But so many people don't realize if you come together with, with love but with a really good plan, and, and, and not relying on your own thoughts, but get expert direction either from the book or the website or, you know, give us a call. You know, we'll be happy to talk to you. We'll help you. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you've done for me and my career and the, and the mentorship and, and friendship. And it's been really nice getting to know you all over the last several years and working with you. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. And and opening your hearts. Well, this yes. has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this. You know, Patrick, we love you. And it was so good to get to know all of you. And you yes, know, if you ever want you. us back, just give us a call. This was great. We do. It's we been do. a real pleasure. We do, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's really been <laughs> yes. fun. You all are you all are delightful people. You can just feel you can feel your passion. I got goosebumps multiple times in that conversation. So thank you all so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.